Welcome to the 309th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today is a researcher's roundtable with Tanya Corbin, Summer Marion, and Philip Vostel. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID Calls live on weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, July 13th, 2021, there are 4,043,228 deaths from COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. In the United States, there are now 607,445 deaths from COVID-19. India reporting 410,784. And in the country of Brazil, 534,233 lives have been lost to COVID-19. Everyone acknowledges that these numbers at this point are an undercount. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that reading now. Aruka Juma, last man of his tribe, is dead. That's the headline for a piece published March 10th, 2021 in the New York Times by Michael Astor. Aruka Juma saw his Amazon tribe dwindle to just a handful of people during his lifetime. Numbering an estimated 15,000 in the 18th century, they were ravaged over years by disease and successive massacres by rubber, tappers, loggers, and miners. An estimated 100 remained in 1943. A massacre in 1964 left only six, including Mr. Juma, who, like many indigenous Brazilians, used his tribe's name as his surname. In 1999, with the death of his brother-in-law, he became the last remaining Juma male. The tribe's extinction was assured. Mr. Juma died on February 17th of this year in a hospital in Porto Velo, the capital of Rodonia State in western Brazil. He was believed to have been 86, between 86 and 90. The cause was COVID-19, his grandson, Pure Juma Yuru Uwawa said. With the death of Mr. Juma, the last fluent speaker of the tribe's language, many of his people's traditions and rituals will be forever lost. While most Brazilians would be hard-pressed to recognize his name or even locate his nearly 100,000-acre jungle reservation on a map, Mr. Juma's tribe achieved a certain degree of notoriety. Anti-indigenous interests often pointed to the tribe as an example of how the government went too far in protecting native peoples, like granting ancestral lands regardless of a tribe's size. Indigenous groups countered that their dwindling numbers resulted from centuries of attacks and government neglect, and that denying the tribes their traditional lands would only reward genocide. In 1998, under murky circumstances, federal officials in Brazil removed Mr. Juma and his family from their land and brought them to neighboring Rondonia State 
in the hope that they would marry into the related Uru-Yuwawao tribe as a way to partly preserve their culture. But Mr. Juma suspected that the move was intended to deprive his family of their land. He sued to be returned, a case that dragged on for 14 years. In the meantime, all three of his daughters married Uru-Yuwawao men. The Juma returned to their land in 2012. Mr. Juma was pleased, but some of his daughter's husbands refused to live there. The grandchildren, who speak only Portuguese, had to return to Rondonia to attend school. Mr. Juma, who spoke no Portuguese, expressed frustration about being unable to communicate with his grandchildren and teach them the Juma traditions. These days I feel alone and think a lot about back when there were many of us, he told the photographer Gabriel Uchida who spent time living among the Juma and photographing them in a 2016 article on the culture and lifestyle website riskafaka.com. We were many before the rubber tappers and the prospectors came to kill all the Juma people. Back then, the Juma were happy. Now there's only me. Mr. Juma was born in the 1930s in a jungle village on the Aqua River in the northwestern state of Amazonas. His father was Agir Juma and his mother was Borea Juma. His face was tattooed with lines extending from the ears to the mouth and around the lips in the warrior tradition. He often wore the warrior's thick belt made from vines extending up from his waist to cover his lower ribs. In his later years, he hunted, fished, and farmed manioc, fruits, and nuts. Along with his grandson, Pure, Mr. Chuma is survived by his daughters, Mande, Maita, and Boreha, all from his first marriage and Juvi from his second. He had 13 other grandchildren. To preserve the tribe's memory, some of his grandchildren have included Juma in their surnames before the name Uro Uowao, something anthropologists said was rare among patrilineal Amazon tribes. The article was Aruka Juma, last man of his tribe, is dead. Okay, I'd like to turn to the conversation for today. This is one I've really been looking forward to. It's Researchers Roundtable, and let me introduce my guest today, Tanya Corbin, who holds a PhD in political science, is a disaster policy scholar and department chair of security and emergency services at Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University worldwide. Before pursuing an academic career, she worked in policy, nonprofit, and business, including as a small business owner. This experience informs her academic work where she aims to co-create knowledge with applied value to inform public policy and support practitioners through research and innovative academic program development. Her current research agenda includes a comparative project examining policy change after the 2017 hurricane season and governmental policy responses to COVID-19. She is a co-lead for the National Science Foundation Converge COVID-19 Emergency Management Working Group, partnering there with Dr. Samantha Montano. Second guest is Summer Marion. Summer Marion is incoming post postdoctoral fellow at the University of Maryland School of Public Policy and PhD candidate in political science at Northeastern University. She holds additional affiliations as a research fellow with the Pandemics and Borders Project, research associate with the Center for International and Security Studies at Maryland, and visiting researcher with Harvard Humanitarian Initiative at the T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Summer's research focuses on global governance, international organizations, health security, and philanthropy. She's currently working on projects 
examining the role of private foundations in outbreak preparedness, prevention, and response, as well as the border politics of global outbreaks. My third guest is Philip Vostel. Philip is a senior researcher at the Center for Science, Technology, and Society Studies at the Institute of Philosophy of the Czech Academy of Sciences. He's been working on synthesizing several streams within STS, including lab studies and actor network theory with social studies of time. In his current research, he explores time and temporality in big science and how various time layers and their interminglings co-shape knowledge. Currently, he's writing a book investigating the multiplicity of speeds and accelerations in socio-technical domains and human lives broadly conceived. The book is titled The Speed Complex, The Socio-Technical and Human Dimensions, which will be forthcoming with Bristol University Press in 2023. He teaches STS at Charles University in Prague and serves as the secretary at the European Association for the Study of Science and Technology. Tanya Corbin, Summer Marion, and Philip Vostel, thank you so much for joining me on COVID Calls. I could actually just go on the whole session reading your bios because there's so much interesting work in there, and I, we'll have a chance to hear a bit from each of you about your specific research, but I'd like to start the way I generally do, if it's okay, just to find out where you're calling from, what the pandemic situation, the vaccination situation looks there, and uh, looks like there. Tanya, let me start with you on that. Sure. Thanks for having me, Scott. It's great to be here. And um, thank you so much for doing this every day and keeping this really important work going. It's it's really amazing. And I'm really happy to be here. Um, so, so I'm here in sunny and very warm Daytona Beach, Florida. And um, as many folks know, generally in the United States, um, the Cases numbers are rising and our vaccination rates are slowing. Um, right now, Florida is in the top five states for um, COVID cases, new cases. And um, I think we're number five today. We are, last week the CDC reported 23,747 cases. And that was the highest increase since the end of May. So we, we're, on, we're heading in the wrong direction. Um, the case positivity rate was 8%, more than 8% last week. And um, our, our vaccination rates are mostly on, on par with the US average. So we are at 58% of our eligible population right now. That's heavily skewed to our older population, which Florida has a significant number of older people. So we're doing better than some states. You know, we're doing better than Mississippi um, at 47%, but we're doing far worse than, say, Vermont at 76.5%. So um, people mostly have been behaving the same way here as they have almost for the entire duration of the pandemic. So that, that part hasn't changed much. So. I know you don't have the landscape view of the whole state, Tanya, but I mean, with this uptick in cases, do you sense any change in people's behavior and their affect, even just discussing it casually, or has this been normalized in that sense? Um, interestingly, we Florida has been complete in phase three, which is, you know, wide open without any re statewide restrictions, even on indoor dining since September 25th. 2020. So I think for people here, COVID has been not in the forefront of their uh, driving their behaviors for a long time. 
So people, and then we have huge numbers of tourists. And I think we saw a big spike in cases from the July 4th weekend. So it's a very busy weekend here. So, Summer, let me bring you in. Same question. Sure, absolutely. Well, thanks um, to echo, you know, Tanya's thanks. Thanks very much, Scott, for having us and for providing this great human perspective on the pandemic and this variety of views throughout. So I think we're all in awe of, uh, of your tenacity. Uh, I'm calling in from Woburn, Massachusetts, which is just outside of Boston. So of course, similar to Tanya, um, another US state, we are seeing an uptick in cases in the US and to a very small extent that actually applies as well to Massachusetts, though we're uh, doing quite well here in comparison to many other uh, US states. So I think uh, since late May, our, um, our seven day case count has been um, around, at least for new cases, seven day average has been around 100 cases or lower. It is now up to around 140 in the last few days. So again, you know, small increase. We've had days where we saw no deaths from COVID-19 in Massachusetts, which is a huge mile marker at this point. Um, recently, it's been, I think, you know, below 10, uh, the seven day average death count. Um, the last number I saw was, I think, two. Uh, in terms of vaccination, uh, we've done quite well. And so we have around 72% of eligible population has received uh, at least one dose of a vaccine. And I believe around 62% are fully vaccinated. Um, and so, you know, generally, uh, vaccine uptake here was pretty good, though, as in many cases, many places in the US, it is it is flattening out. And Massachusetts also removed all of its restrictions much earlier than anticipated. That happened here on Memorial Day weekend when it wasn't really expected to happen until the end of the summer. So we are seeing a big, uh, a big change here in the way people view the pandemic. I think in the Boston area, people were taking it quite seriously um, and restrictions were in place you know, for quite a while. Uh, I have family in North Carolina and they at one point very carefully drove up here in quarantine to visit me and they said they really saw public masking here was was quite different from what they saw at home. Um, people were doing it, you know, much more regularly. Um, it was much more pervasive. And that has certainly changed. Um, and so it's hard to know with, you know, how little genetic sequencing data we have, how much the Delta variant is, is affecting case counts here. But I think that's one thing I'm curious to see moving forward. Since you mentioned um, Massachusetts, I do have to get a, a shout out to my mother-in-law and father-in-law who are in Gloucester. So hello to them. And uh, they are devoted listeners. So <laughs> I, I, I want to- I was in Gloucester on a Sunday night. So beautiful. Such a, it's such a beautiful place. Um, but I'm curious, I want to follow up because you know these numbers, the 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 discussion, the discourse around those vaccination numbers in the United States being stuck is once again requires a sort of state by state view because this is a pandemic that's, I mean, in terms of centralized management has, it's gotten better, but I mean, it's really been 50 pandemics. And um, I wanted to ask you about this summer, have the, the sort of PSAs and public health communication targeting vaccination, has that continued? Because I, I wonder about states where the number seems high but are they investing resources and in actually trying to take it 
even higher, because that would seem sensible to me in a state where maybe public opinion isn't necessarily rooted in ideology, but people just haven't gotten to it yet, or they've been slightly hesitant waiting to see what happens, and now the numbers would tell them, hey, I'll, I'll be vaccinated. So I'm sort of curious about the elasticity of that number. I kind of know where it's going to be in Mississippi, Tanya referenced Mississippi. I don't know what the upper limit for Massachusetts might be. That's a great question. Um, and it's obviously one of the one of the interesting things to watch in the United States during this pandemic, because in the US, we're good at technology and we're good at medical research. We're not so great at the nuts and bolts of public health. And we haven't been put to the test in this way before. And as you said, Scott, it's really been uh, the buck has been passed to the states, at least for the, the better part of 2020. And while we've seen that change, you know, to what extent? In Massachusetts, to get to your question, I have seen you know continuing investment in this kind of communication. You're still driving down I-93, the major highway. You still see the signs that say you know get vaccinated, um, advertising where vaccines are available, etc. At the same time, from what I can see, there has been some decrease in investment just because, for example, the Heinz Convention Center, the major convention center in Boston, where I received both of my vaccinations. Um, they weren't they weren't filling up their appointments. So I, you know, I can't imagine that the state could afford to keep all of these resources available um, when the public was not using them as much. Right. Well, thank you for that. Um, and, and reporting out from Massachusetts. And Philip, I want to bring you in. Um, same question just about where you're calling from and what the situation looks like. I'm calling from Prague, uh, the Czech Republic. Um, where the situation is, I would say, strangely stabilized, but strangely would probably be underlined. Um, the situation is definitely better than, say, six months ago, when the Czech Republic, when you take the ratio of, 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 of deaths um, and compare it to the population of the country, Czech Republic was one of the worst, and at some point, the worst country in the world. Uh, followed by Slovakia, which is not, uh, which is a, not and not a coincidence, but in a way it is a strange coincidence because it used to be one country back in the days, as you probably all know. Um, I checked the statistics actually before our roundtable today, and yeah, I just wanted to second Summer and, and Tanya uh, for your work. Scott is just absolutely fabulous, and the the commitment and energy is just astonishing. And thanks for that. Um, um, I just checked the statistics um, right before our call, and um, yesterday there was um, 240 new cases uh, reported. Uh, there is about 2,200 2, active cases. Uh, around 40 people are in difficult conditions. And don't forget the Czech Republic is a, is a country of 10 million people which is, I don't know what kind of state in the US that would be, but you would probably know better than I do. Um, that there are some good signs that around 3.9 million people are fully vaccinated. Um, one point, closely 1, 1.36 uh, had at least one vaccine or one, one, one shot. So these are quite, a, quite an interesting sort of progressive developments going on when it comes to vaccine. Uh, but at the same time, 
if uh, there is one kind of thing that that I do register elsewhere, but in the Czech Republic, as every country would have their own kind of cultural uh, uh, and, and, and social specifics of that case, there is a very uh, strong sort of anti-vax movement that we will probably be talking about. Um, and, and and on the one hand, and on the other hand, the vaccination capacity is extremely well organized here. Um, so there is a kind of a, a, a asymmetry going on here. There's lots of vaccines waiting and ready that need to be used. And there is a kind of almost a kind of a latent campaign uh, by some political forces, some kind of brown political forces, I would say, that are um, using the whole kind of COVID situation for spreading various kinds of conspiracies and hoaxes. So, um, mm. but um, and and the, the the saddest number is that uh, from March 2020 uh, to date, uh, the number of dead people is 30,333, um, which again for a small country such as the Czech Republic is quite a high number. Uh, I think so. This is the situation right now. Uh, the the whole country was a, was in heavy lockdown from first of March to the first of May, when literally everything that was uh, uh, that was not necessary for the for the social existence or just for the existence and uh, uh, was closed, just locked. Um, people were at home, um, and um, now I can see that there is a kind of a um, people are breathing again in a, in, a, in a sort of an interesting kind of way and but maybe the breathing is just perhaps too enthusiastic and i'm a bit afraid of this enthusiasm especially when it comes to the coming september when the schools will open mm. well, this is the situation at the moment right here right now in the czech republic philip i want to um stay with you for a second and and ask if you wouldn't mind sharing what you have as maybe the strongest memory of this pandemic period. And, and I realize I asked this question of guests and I realize it's almost an impossible question to answer, but so to gather one idea, but I'm always curious what people are really associating with this last 18 months. Um, actually, I've got two memories, if I may. One of them, they're very simple and, and powerful. For me, they were powerful. The first memory, and it's kind of strangely enough, sort of, it's something ongoing. The first, but we may call it a memory, if you, if you wish. It is how quickly the virus has spread all, uh, over the whole planet and how the whole planet was taken by surprise by that. To me, you know, that was March 2020 and, and April 2020. And this was like, the, the 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 sheer speed of 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 the, the the virus was something that that really you know was striking for me. Um, I finally probably understood what the word that I'm not a big fan of globalization probably means. Mm -hmm. um, the other memory is a, is a very local one, is a kind of more emotional one, I would say. And that is, to those of you who were in Prague, you might remember one of the main destinations that you can't miss if you are here, and that's the Old Town Square. And on the 25th of March, which was this year, which was exactly one year after the first death was recorded, uh, 25,000 crosses 
were painted on the square um, and and it become a kind of a spontaneous memorial place mm. that is often flooded with tourists and everything and now it's just a kind of a one big highly charged place with uh, with uh, with uh, with something that is very difficult to describe unless you visit it i would say so I've I've got these two moments and memories that 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 really are, are uh, that yeah whether we call them memories or moments uh, yeah I don't know, but, uh, yeah that would be the two things I, I would probably say thank you for sharing that and I can picture that place and for me it's a place of of great memories traveling with my brother and I I hadn't seen the photos of that I'll, and I'll, now I'll go and look for that. Uh, I hadn't seen any news coverage of that. That's tremendous. Thank you for that. Summer, I want to bring you in just with this same impossible question. Sure. It is a, a tough question to answer as I was thinking on it. And actually what came to mind is uh, something I'm sure Philip will have some things to say about later in our discussion, because what came to mind for me was actually this contrast of hearing about things after they had already happened with this constant 24-7 news cycle that we have, where we're all hearing when we hit a major global you know, um, moment in the pandemic, when we hit a certain number of cases, you know, again, which as you say, were underreported, but still when we hit a certain number of deaths, um, when a, you know, those types of things we all heard about. Uh, the US election, of course, something that we were all able to watch the inauguration, the election returns in real time. Yet I was fortunate to be able to work from my home. I was fortunate to have a job and a home during the pandemic at the same time that meant that I wasn't hearing those daily things from my family, from my friends um, who are spread across the world, even from my colleagues with whom I might have a Zoom call for a specific purpose. You're not gonna have the kind of water cooler conversation uh, that you would otherwise. So I found that major personal events or life events, the news of those was delayed and you had to be much more intentional about learning that information from people in your lives. Um, so to me, that that's a strange contrast that, you know, it's not one single event, but when I think back over the way I've received information over the last year and, and three or four months, um, I could convince myself on any day that it's a normal day, but over the span of time, uh, it's been a very odd way to learn about what's happening in the world. I'm thinking Scott may have frozen up on us a little bit there. Scott, if you can still hear us, um, oh, I think he'll be back in a second. But um, I'll just say, Philip, thank you for sharing that image and that memory. And Summer, I really relate to that idea of missing your people. I moved to Florida the week before, um, the March 1st, 2020. So the week before things began kind of in earnest here. So I definitely 
understand that feeling. And, um, and I guess um, maybe I should answer that same question while we wait for Scott. <laughs> Feels like dead air. Um, so I have to also, Philip, like you, um, I think the initial vaccine rollout really stays with me um, for how chaotic it was and how it just, it, it was so emblematic of how broken the, the 50 pandemics in the you know, state pandemics were and how precarious the Republic is and how um, worried I was on a personal level too, because my husband is very high risk. And so we stayed very isolated, you know, in a new place. We didn't know anybody, we didn't have family or friends. And we were, I was really worried and he couldn't get the vaccine even once he was eligible because here, you know, a lot of those decisions were made based on political interests and not using CDC guidelines. And even though at one point he became in the vulnerable eligible category, he wasn't able to get an appointment. So it was like this endless loop of agencies and it was this incredible bureaucracy failure where it was, well, you need a doctor's note. Okay, I have a doctor's note. Okay, we'll make an appointment. Okay, get all your friends to go online and wait for something to open up and you book it. Drive to three counties. And then every time he was turned away and you know, just couldn't get the vaccine. And then they said, we have to get it at a hospital. And then when you go to the hospital, well, we only give those vaccines to our patients um, who are in the hospital. So, you know, it just became sort of this stressful, like, okay, you know. Um, and even having said that, I have resources, I have privilege, I'm, you know, I'm working from home during the pandemic, I have been. So, yeah. Um, I think the second second memory was that just stands out very similar in a way to yours, Philip, because um, it was shortly after the election and Biden was declared the winner and I was driving. And so I snapped this photo that um, was on the corner. There were all of these protests and, you know, Trump flags and Scott's back. I just decided I, to keep talking, Scott. <laughs> this is the second time this has happened to me in 309 episodes. And Summer, I'm sorry because I missed the last part of what you're saying, and I'll go back and, and listen to it. I'm sure it was you carried on beautifully. And I, I, the last time this happened, it was my father. And when I came back, he, he was in mid-stride, and you're doing the same. So thank you so much. And I'm sorry to interrupt you, so please continue. No, I'm glad you're back. I was just uh, talking about my second memory um, or moment, and it was about the photo that I sent you. Um, and I was just about to tell uh, Summer and Philip and our audience that it was right after Biden had won the election and we were driving, and I snapped this photo while I was driving, and there were these people on the corner yelling and screaming and they had trump flags and they were saying masks kill and i just couldn't believe and, and it was this moment of clarity of how precarious our republic is how broken our system had been throughout this whole pandemic and and it just hit me hard the level of fear and ignorance that i was seeing just you know really um it really hit me hard 
We lost him again. <laughs> yeah, well, this is a it's a round table without moderator jumping in and off, you know, on and off for the other moderator, which is cool, I guess. But you know, from what, what, what you were saying, I really I really appreciate these these experiences, I have to say. And um uh, Summer, what you said about the uh the, the media coverage, for instance, as, as you've indicated, that this is a whole another dimension, I think, of the of the of the moment that we are actually happening to be in. And um, I've, 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 it's 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 very interesting how, to me, how the the, the, the big news channels, in particular, how there were certain uh, streams of, of of long periods of time when, when COVID sort of dominated for, for very good reasons the news um but then i can imagine that um this that the, the journalists uh, were sort of um uh sort of catching up with the with the developments that were even faster than the news media are which is which is you know something that i could barely ever imagine that there could be something faster than uh, of course then we are not uh, I'm, I'm 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 sort of not talking about social media, but when you were, uh, but but the, the the news media channels uh, all around the globe and how they were incredibly good in reporting, I noticed at some point you know a certain asymmetry you know in 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 the way how you know the 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 disease was kind of moving around and changing and and and, and in, each, in each country in each region and each continent sort of different things were happening, and there were. The, the 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 journalists were, were, were not, not necessarily desperate in a strong sense but kind of really trying to catch up you know and catch up with the latest news but when they had it there was a new one coming and um there was a particular sort of aspect of the you know how the 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 covid pandemic was actually reported and 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 registered by by mass media and uh, it's 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 just a, it's just an incredibly fascinating aspect of uh, how mass media actually operate and um, um and um and of course there was a strange moment at some point when uh, i just it's a personal experience of mine now and when i was like it's just too much you know i have to turn it off um because yeah i, I need to know i want to know uh but it's it's so frustrating and um and in a, in a strange way repetitive um, um so but um, yeah, well, thanks for opening up this kind of um, weird asymmetrical kind of media coverage and the actual kind of things on the ground that 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 that, that are happening sort of globally or on a planetary level. And, um, so um, yeah, that, that 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 was an interesting. It's, it's, it is still an interesting aspect of the of the moment that we are we are in right now. Certainly. Yeah. Thanks, Philip. And, and I think Tanya also, you know, touched on another piece that we didn't mention, which is the polarization. And so here I am saying, well, everyone was hearing these same pieces of news when, yes, many of us were seeing these headlines, but they were being interpreted and understood in such different ways. And I would I would just add another memory that I have that really um, spoke to me and I think drives this home, was going to a doctor's appointment at a major Boston hospital um, a couple of months ago as vaccines were starting to be rolled out. 
And this is again in an area with high vaccine uptake and asking, um, asking one of the nurses how things have been for them since uh, vaccines became more prevalent. And she said, oh, a lot of the people working at the hospital, they don't want to get vaccinated. And so that really said to me, I'm not even fully aware of what's going on in my own community, that there are many healthcare workers, you know, who have these reservations. And I think with a novel virus, um, you know, that makes that kind of public health education even harder because there were facts that were being shared at the beginning of the pandemic because they were based on the best science we had. And, and those facts change over time, um, which of course is terrible for building trust and is very difficult uh, to figure out how to navigate, which contributed to the issue. If I may add just one sentence to that, I think you've, Summer, you've touched upon something incredibly important, and that is that something that preceded COVID and that came up with the, probably we would be able to trace it back to 2008 and nine financial crisis, that in my eyes, via various steps, is the very beginning of the era of Trump and Brexit and the the, the, the rise of, of, of all sorts of conspiracy kind of strange confused movements of all sorts across the planet and what i see um here is you know the crisis of trust uh in 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 public institutions um such as the state such as science such as media is um is now incredibly you know we are in an incredibly dangerous situation i think because um, I see these deniers of like, it's all invented, it's never happened, you know, it's just, uh, you know, this tiny ruling elite, it's the deep state and blah, 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 you know, that kind of rubbish. It, it's very powerful here in the Czech Republic as well. And um, it's, it's, it's almost impossible to, to have any sensible and, and thoughtful discussion with, with these groups of people. And that's what scares me, because they are very vocal. They 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 can let themselves to be hurt quite a lot. They are kind of shouting like um, like I don't know like what, but uh, it's it's just they are minorities of that in the, in comparison to the majoritarian um, uh, you know society, if you like, here in the Czech Republic. This is a very tiny minority, but it's very vocal. And um, many, many sort of undecided people who, for some reason, many pair, for instance, there is an example here, you know, there is now kind of um, a, 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 a children from the 12 year, year old age can be now vaccinated. Um, and um, there is a whole kind of movement of parents um, who are sometimes legitimately worried because they are worried about, you know, that just, it's their kids and they're worried about them. They want just good for them, and um, but from what I can see the way how they what kind of 
um, uh, kind of aspects they come up with that are definitely coming from these totally confused, I call it confused modernity that we live in, um, uh, uh, maybe more confused than pre-COVID one, uh, I would be more precise. But um, from what I can see is that, you know, if, if um, the stories that are behind uh, the, the, you know, the anti-vax movements here, especially when it comes to vaccination, when the parents have to be involved, when the kids would get the vaccine, these stories that I've heard here are incredible. You know, the reality is sort of um, has, has fiction is much real than reality in this case, or how to put it. You know, reality is just unbelievable, you know, in, 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 in a sense. Uh, and um, it, uh, you know, you have the vaccine, and all the all the technologies stop working when you come back home, and and, and whatever you know, you get the vaccine, and then all the other vaccines that you got, which that there comes the irony because you know there's like nine mandatory vaccines in the Czech Republic when you get bored, otherwise they won't allow you to be in a in a child collective, um, like uh, rubella and mumps, and there are other ones. Um, and um, and I'm like, okay, well, these parents were fine with that, and now there is an issue with the COVID vaccination. Is it because of the fact that it was so quickly developed? I'm wondering, um, what is behind that, or is it just the kind of another another little sort of aspect of of fragment of the, you know, uh, very dangerous kind of anti everything. Uh, 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 movements that 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 um, that Trump represented in my eyes, you know, in, uh, as the as the as the main uh, uh, sort of character and sort of animator of these these conspiracy movements. So I, um, that was just the kind of a, 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 a an example of, a, of you know how polarized um, we were polarized in pre-COVID and it's, it's interesting how the COVID situation kind of feeds and further polarizes and there are new division lines uh, between the two camps, basically. And of course, the camps are not homogenous. There are differences within them. But um, I can see the trenches that are, you know, one group can't see the other because the trenches are so deep. And um, in this kind of, social setting uh, a sensible and, and and a sort of profound and necessary sort of public discussion about anything basically is is nearly impossible you know? and that's that's the dangerous kind of that's the danger that's the danger that i can see right now uh, whatever happens in september for instance here uh, with so, the Delta. um having continuing technical difficulties here on my side with my apologies for to happen to me so I'm really apologizing for the stress on my on my guests but I also have catching the, the drift a bit because I can still hear you as I'm trying to sort things out on my on my side um, I, I wanted to make sure that we we do come around um, as we often do on a researchers roundtable and kind of give each person a chance to talk a little bit more detailed about their own research trajectory through COVID and I know you've been already sort of touching on that through our discussion thus far um, I'm gonna start with Tanya on this, and it's appropriate since the Natural Hazard Center um, hazards meeting is happening this week and disaster researchers, they're not convening in Colorado as they usually would, but they are convening 
in cyberspace. And Tanya, you're part of this um, NSF Converge group with Sam Montano on emergency management and policy analysis in a pandemic. Maybe people aren't as familiar maybe with what the NSF Converge is and um, what this particular working group is doing. Can you give us an update on that? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Scott. Um, thanks for thanks for the question and for raising this um, really important work that Lori Peak has really driven. Um, we have right at the start of the pandemic, um, there was this NSF funding for Converge work, and Lori helped form ninety working groups, and it's incredible. It she brought together this incredible community, and that's where Samantha and I got together and. She's my co-lead on this initiative, and our group is policy analysis in a, during a pandemic, um, emergency management and policy analysis. So she brings her emergency management side, and I bring the policy side, and I think that we are just starting to begin a long-term process with that group. But one of the things that I think has come from this already um, is that we have really learned, and I guess everybody's learning this, right, is how important the states have been in the US. Um, and how little we really know in terms of emergency management and policymaking in the states. And that is something that's already come out of this. Um, we have built a database so far with 50 state policy plans for emergency management. And we've looked at those plans and done some preliminary analyses, but what we're finding is there was huge variation and some states didn't have any pandemic plan in place when COVID started because the states aren't supposed to do this, right? So we have some pretty big questions about what happens when the federal government breaks down. And, and um, the other piece of this that I think has come out of this is that our policy theories don't really do a good job of explaining this type of event. Um, we have, you know, the typical response time in an emergency management or a disaster, it's about 72 hours. So policy processes are very different in a long-term event like this, a long-duration event. And the scope of this event, right? Transboundary, global, everybody dealing with this at the same time, you know, we really don't have the theories and the practitioner experience to deal with this. And so that's one of the goals of this group. Long term, we're really, we are really committed to building partnerships with our practitioners and policymakers. And um, we've been talking about some ideas and some ways to do that. So um, I hope that gives a little bit of an overview. Yeah, it does. Just yeah. to underline, um one part of that. So you collected the emergency management plans and analyzed them from all 50 states? Except for a few who wouldn't give them to us, well, who will not be named, but yes. <laughs> and, the, and the territories we can get as well. So, yes. Okay. Yeah. And, and, and so in that, and then sort of matching that up with actually what happened, I mean, first of all, amazing undertaking just to do that. But what, were there some sort of high level findings in terms of gaps in the in the planning documents that they showed that they just hadn't thought about policies or or rules that they were going to need to deal with the pandemic yeah sort of a high level take on it is that um most of the country hasn't hadn't really thought about it 
most of the pandemic type of um, planning we saw was more of like foot, you know, agricultural based, you know, if you, if you had a flu, yes, that was in there a little bit, but it was mostly like, well, what if a cow got, you know, had, there was like all this agricultural and it made sense for some of the parts of the country. Right. But there was definitely nothing, um, nothing really widespread. So everything that they planned for was really not a transboundary type of event. It was really more localized. Uh, definitely wasn't much in the global way. Not to say, and, and when the, we did find some, they were, you know, a paragraph. We'll work with the CDC. We'll work with the public health agencies. And so I think that what we're seeing is that there's a huge disconnect here between what is the role of emergency managers and emergency management compared to the role of public health agencies, right? And um, maybe there's not the best sort of coordination or understanding about what those should be or what those should look like. Were so, there any states that you looked at and thought, wow, this this is really, they're ahead of the game here? No. <laughs> a lot of gaps. Um, I know you want to single anybody out, but I'm always curious if there's, if there's some in, a, in the individual state that really was innovative on this. We didn't find, um, we found better and less good, but we didn't find great, if that okay. helps. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, some of them, you know, when we publish it, we have something under review. We're definitely not going to call states out because, sure. you know, there's a million reasons why they don't have this or didn't think about this or didn't have resources. And a lot of it, um, which is part of what we're looking at now, is how we allocate funding for FEMA through FEMA grants, the EMPG funding. Um, it's very difficult to get funding for the things that emergency managers need. So, um, as, as you all probably know. So that's part of it too. So it's not entirely like the state's fault. Um, and also I don't, you know, the state wasn't supposed to have this role. I mean, that mm. the, the federal government was supposed to lead this response, full stop, you know? So that's part of it. So are there policy changes that you feel confident recommending at this point? I think of one just in your discussion just now, which should be a, around the availability of research funds and planning grants that should flow from FEMA. I mean, it's kind of a contradictory thing to fund. Like, here's FEMA. We'd like to fund a grant in case we totally fail at our job so that <laughs> states can actually follow through. But I mean, it's kind of what we're talking about here. Well, we, we could think of it that way. Um, we could also think of it in a way... Don't, don't put that in the grant application. I can say that because I'm not applying for that grant. You shouldn't, right. <laughs> you shouldn't do that. So the way I would probably write down the grant would be more of a, um, a all disasters are local at first, right? Mm -hmm. And so they scale up and there needs to be coordination. And, you know, my work with Katrina, we certainly, and everybody's work with Katrina, we certainly learned a ton about the coordination. Um, so I have a, I have a couple of policy recommendations off the top of my head in my dream world of policy change that um, I think would really help. Um, and what, the first one is the one that every single person who studies the United States disasters recommends, which is get FEMA out from under DHS, make them a cabinet level agency, restore them back to a cabinet level agency. Um, you know, we have very successful 
female leadership with James Lee Witt, and we can go back to that model. So that's, you know, that's one national level change that I don't think is that that hard to make um, with some political will. But the other piece of it sort of gets at what you were saying, the other recommendations, Scott, that I would say is we really need to create a, a national policy research arm. And I think that maybe you and Samantha have even talked about this too, but you know, we need better data and we need access to it. FEMA's job is not to collect and hold data and they have other things they have to do and they need people like us to do that. So I would really like in my perfect dream world of disaster policy change, I would very much like to see us have a sort of GAO style, nonpartisan, you know, policy think tank working hand in hand with Congress. And, you know, some of the research right now is really indicating we used to think of Congress as of just pork barrel politics. We throw money at disasters after they happen, just relief funds, political relief funds. But that's really changing. And Congress is starting to look at oversight functions and starting to look a lot more at where is our money going? What is mitigation? It's getting, it's getting hard to ignore you know, or the disaster situation. So, so I, I would like to see that since, since um, I'm in the, since I get to make all these wish lists. Um, and then I think the biggest thing that we need, and this is my political science hat, so Summer will probably relate to this. Um, disasters don't have policy advocates with Congress. They do not. There is no lobby group. There's no advocacy organization. And we really need that. We need somebody to go and advocate and to represent the really kind of complex information in a way that's really accessible and impactful for policymakers. So that, those would be a few of my changes. Just now I've talked too much, sorry. No, not at all. I, I'm I'm really glad you made that that last point, and that's really kind of what COVID calls is all about from day one. Was that we don't have nearly enough resources, but also venues for disaster researchers, both over time, but also in the moment, to come together and work, and then also, and they're here and there certainly. But I mean, we need an order of magnitude more of that kind of research if we actually care to attach knowledge to response and actually care that the outcomes don't. Repeat previous failures of response. So I'm right there with you on that. Summer, um, just to bring you in, if you wanted to comment on anything Tanya said, but also to hear more about the research you're doing right now. And I'm particularly interested in this sort of role of private philanthropy in the COVID-19 response. So if you want to talk to that or anything else that Tanya put on the table, please do. Absolutely. Thanks so much. Um, Tanya, it's really exciting to hear about your work and it definitely sparked a lot of things that I hope I can connect to as I talk a little bit about the, the projects I've been working on. Um, in particular, this last point, you know, about, about advocacy. Um, and so hopefully I'll get to that as I share a little bit about my work as well. Um, so I focus more, as Scott said, on, on the global governance aspects of, um, of managing health outbreaks. That's always been my specific focus. And uh, in particular, I look at the recently growing sort of again, role of private philanthropy in those endeavors. So this isn't new, private philanthropy has always been played a major part of global health governance um, since you know the beginning of the World Health Organization in the middle of the last century. However, 
Um, we didn't see them playing, you know, the role that that they play over the last couple of decades um, until around 2000, sort of with this influx of big tech funding, funding the Gates Foundation and others. Um, so uh, these foundations, these large private foundations tend to have a very um, technically focused approach. Um, so focusing on technology as solutions rather than sometimes some of the more systemic, holistic solutions we know we need, like strengthening health systems and prevention, that sort of thing. And um, they now account for around 20% of development assistance for health. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation in particular is the second largest funder of the World Health Organization behind the US government. Um, however, until the uh, Ebola outbreak in West Africa in 2014, they really resisted becoming deeply involved in crisis response. So while they were really deeply involved in you know, vaccine development and things like that, a lot of these technical solutions that were ongoing over time, uh, they really recognized, um, and you know, Bill Gates has gone on the record stating this, that actually responding to a crisis uh, should be the prerogative of countries. And um, they also recognized that it wasn't happening. And so that's when we started to see a, a larger influx of private funding. Um, and so for the last 20 years or so before COVID, we saw around uh, $7 billion of um, private philanthropic funding go toward outbreaks that required a global response. During COVID, unsurprisingly, you know, that number is over $25 billion. Um, so, and this is according to data from Candid, formerly the Foundation Center. Uh, so a lot of my work looks at better understanding how these um, private philanthropic institutions are influencing policy outcomes and whether, uh, whether that has staying power. And, you know, so mm. interestingly, uh, what I'm finding is at least prior to COVID, uh, that it wasn't necessarily through crises, including Ebola, which, um, which was a big crisis in which private foundations played a role. Um, it wasn't through policy windows created after crises that this influence was exerted, more through development of these new, more nimble public-private partnerships, um, which I think you know gets into some of Tanya's points about um, we're used to doing crisis response quickly, um, having a, a quick turnaround, especially at the local level. And even WHO is constantly facilitating responses to more localized outbreaks. However, when we need a more nimble global governance solution, it's great to be able to rely on private sector organizations that can move money more quickly. Um, we saw Wellcome Trust, the Gates Foundation move faster than a lot of countries. Um, so I could go on, um, but we're seeing it really through these public-private partnerships in which private foundations have voting power. Um, and the point I'd like to get to is that during COVID, this is really reflected in, in COVAX, um, the vaccine mm -hmm. development and distribution initiative, which is started, it is a public-private partnership in and of itself, but it started by two pre-existing public-private partnerships, Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, and CEPI, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness and Innovation, both of which were founded in part years ago by the Gates Foundation. Um, so this is a new generation of public-private partnership, which has managed the global effort along with WHO um, to develop, and its goal was to equitably distribute vaccines. 
Um, and I think, you know, the, the real take home here is that Bill Gates was right. Uh, the, we can't rely on the private sector to provide public goods. We already knew this. Um, right. And we're seeing at this point, you know, as of late June, I saw a statistic that less than 1% of vaccines had been distributed to low income countries. Um, so while COVAX had these very lofty goals, uh, you know, most countries who were able to, to fund um, vaccine development and distribution also secured bilateral uh, arrangements with pharmaceutical companies, as we've all seen, um, which has resulted in huge supply problems for COVAX, especially with the horrible um, outbreak in India, which is where a lot of the vaccines were coming from. So there have been export restrictions. Um, and, uh, you know, lack, lack of funding. Um, so this sort of a charity model, it, it's, it's not working. And there are a lot of, um, a lot of, you know, uh, conversations on the table right now about how we can improve this in the future. But there are some things that are, are pretty clear. Um, technology transfer, uh, you know, strengthening health systems and, and making this technology available in countries where it's needed uh, would be better, not just longer term, but shorter term globally, even if even if rich countries are taking a selfish perspective. Um, the more transmission we have, the more variants we have um, and the greater global risk uh, we'll be seeing moving forward. So that's a big, a big piece of my research. I Thank you for sharing that. I have so many questions about that, but I'm going to limit myself. And one is kind of just a naive question, but when you started to see so much private philanthropy move into this space, was it about money? I mean, was it just like, we need more money in the system to solve these problems? Or was it more sort of bringing a managerial sense, like cutting through the slowness of governmental bureaucracy? And so you needed a uh, a private partner acting as a as a party, an outside party to come in and do, it's probably more, it's not either or, it's probably something in between. But I ask that because COVID is a is a great test of of whatever those founding philosophies were and, and to the extent that they've that they've passed the test or failed. And, and you're giving a kind of a a, a negative, a poor grade, um, but not a failing grade, I guess. Well, I agree it's somewhere in the middle. Um, but I do think, you know, to your second point about was it about cutting through the red tape? That was the stated intention. Um, mm -hmm. I think we could get uh, funding for a lot of these issues, but if states weren't funding it, and again, this cuts back to some of Tanya's points. For example, after two previous global coronavirus outbreaks, SARS and MERS, we saw an influx of funding toward vaccine development for coronaviruses. That obviously immediately went away. We didn't have a lot of people working on uh, vaccines for you know, novel coronaviruses uh, when this outbreak occurred. And so there are those sorts of things where having a major private donor or someplace like Gates, which signals to other wealthy individuals and, and private donors where their money should go and where it's needed, um, can help put something important on the policy agenda. And then there's also, of course, concern about crowding out. And is this the way that the policy agenda should be constructed, uh, which during COVID, that kind of concern goes far beyond uh, private philanthropy and their interests. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's some combination of the two. And do you see, you know, COVID as a moment in which there will be some kind of an inflection or reckoning that there will be a sort of, and I don't even know where that sort of 
happens. I mean, if WHO fails to discharge its duties, there are venues within which that can be discussed. And, uh, you know, as a global organization, you know, recommendations can be made for change. But I have no, if I don't like the way that Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is doing something, if I'm not happy with that, I can't, I have no recourse or not, none that I'm aware of. And that's where a lot of the concern and critiques of these governance models have, have come from. Um, I would say, I mean, for one thing, WHO is not an operational organization. Uh, it's, its budget is two or three times the size of the budget of the New York City Health Department. Um, so it's doing uh, coordination and information sharing. Um, it's limited in what it can do. So the entree of private philanthropy is not necessarily a reflection of, of a failure on the part of WHO. Um, the 2014 Ebola outbreak was the first global outbreak in which the UN Security Council became involved in the response. And I think, you know, the bottom line is that WHO does not have any enforcement powers um, and it needs access to information. So it has to do what it can do to get that done. Um, but there are there are proposals on the table for negotiating a pandemic treaty, which would be the second treaty negotiated under the WHO, uh, which would uh, give at least the UN, I imagine the Security Council would be involved with that, more enforcement power. Um, so that will be an interesting conversation to watch. We already do have, you know, an international health law, the international health regulations, which is meant to govern a lot of this. So I think there's a lot of, a lot of questions about are we reinventing the wheel and things like that. Um, but I certainly hope that we'll see some productive change. Not to ask you to give up all your research or trade secrets, Summer, but I am curious, like, how do you do research on these private philanthropies? I mean, um, what documentary trail is available? I mean, as a historian, I'm always, you know, in, for example, the insurance industry, very important uh, throughout this entire pandemic, being able to do research on the insurance industry and what they've been trying to do and the data they collect and marshal at this time is going to be very hard for researchers. Yes. Um, it's a challenge. I mean, the reason it hasn't been heavily studied, especially in, you know, in international relations, which is my area, is because data is not very accessible. I will say Candid, where I've secured at least a lot of the quantitative data I work with, um, they've made all their data on COVID publicly accessible. So anyone can go to their website. I think that's, um, that's a big step in the right direction. But for my previous research, I've needed to purchase uh, data. Otherwise, you know, you can you can find tax records for foundations for the previous three years, but um, that's going to take you a lot of time and you can't go back very far. In terms of really understanding what's happening within an institution, though, um, you know, I've spent a lot of time interviewing individuals who, whose career paths have taken them through uh, different foundation and public sector roles. Um, and so that's been incredibly beneficial to get their perspectives on um, on differences between the types of institutions where they've worked. Just a reminder that you're listening to COVID Calls, and it's a researcher's roundtable today with Tanya Corbin, Summer Marion, and Philip Vostal. And 
my guests today win a special award for legendary patients as the technology from my side broke down and they carried on um, beautifully the conversation. And Philip, I want to come to you now sort of to dive a little more deeply into the research you're doing uh, um, through this this time. And I was really pleased by the title of the book, which reflects. And so I know you think a lot about new research on on time and time frames and it's very throughout COVID. It's been one of the most commonly remarked things. We've even talked about it here today. Just um, time compression, time elongation, feeling lost in time, uh, this uncanny sense that things are moving at, at, in other geographies that you are watching, but you have no. I mean, it's been a funhouse in some ways, but that doesn't even really begin to place it analytically where it should. I don't think so. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what your what your research is in this regard. Sure. Yeah. For me, it's 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 really um, uh, given that I consider myself as a sociologist of time. It's really a, it has been a laboratory for me that we are kind of going through in a, in a kind of interesting way. One thing when we we're talking about disasters, just a kind of footnote comment. Um, I'm not a bit of obviously uh, in any way involved in disaster studies, but I've been following certain debates within STS, within science and technology studies about disasters. And one thing that I've noticed is that uh, uh, disasters are, are always sort of almost automatically uh, perceived and thought about as a sort of fast one of events. And um, this is very much not the case, you know, not only with COVID, but, uh, you know, I think that and when it comes to the advocacy for Kind of disaster groups, and I hope that some of the policymakers in the Czech Republic are listening to this. Um, and um, uh, you know, we need to live with the, we need to learn how to live with slow disasters. I think uh, with ongoing, with their ongoingness, with their kind of permanence, as it were. We need to, uh, as Donna Haraway says, although she means it slightly differently. You know, we need to learn how to stay with the trouble. I guess because COVID won't go away. That's the thing. It's a slow disaster. Disasters are not always like, you know, either human-made or or, or, or or natural disasters. Uh, but you would probably have much more to say as a disaster scholars or, uh, as far as I've noticed, you are in, in into disasters. But that, that's my take on kind of fast and slow kind of disasters. But more into the maybe, um, you know, what I've... Um, there, there are kind of two ways of, in which the two very, very fundamental ways in which we can think about time um, and time perception and time um, uh, um, uh, passage and um, time patterns. Uh, and that's the individual and collective level. I, I won't be distinguishing between these two that much, although, you know, there will be probably a hell of a lot of people who would, um, who would, who won't be happy with this. But just to make the story sort of short i think that um on a very on a collective level uh i think that um what, what happened um from the very beginning um is something that i would call sort of loss of future futurity and i i, I use this word deliberately not future but futurity um and um of course we always um juggle with certain degree on individual and collective level a certain degree of temporal uncertainty we we, we never know what's going to follow tomorrow in, in an hour etc but i think 
this, you know, the, the COVID situation has given the temporal uncertainty a completely new spin and completely new kind of twist. And um, there's a there's a huge sense of sort of discontinuity as if um, the futures, various types of futures that we as collectives uh, or collectivities, you know, as the SDS people like to say these days, um, the futures are kind of stolen as it were nowadays. And um, and uh, so that's one kind of interesting thing that uh, and without a future as as sort of social constellations and 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 social collectives, without some kind of sense of future, you know, it's very difficult to to kind of plan to conduct to conduct our collective lives, and that that's 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 I think a, 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 a tremendous issue uh, here. Um, um, especially on a political level, um, but also, um, and I think that Summer, you mentioned it at the very beginning, like you know that, that uh, again, and that's happening on both on individual and collective level. You know that there are kind of um, you know days are kind of collapsing into one another. You know, is it Monday? Is it Wednesday? Um, is it uh, hours? The same kind of thing. What what, what time is it now? You know what meaning clock time because clock time and time you know they are not necessarily the two two same things and um so what i can see and calendars and clocks are the 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 two fundamental instruments through which or tools through which we can actually access time you know time is one of the most ephemeral concepts time and space let's say um that has ever been thought about in the history of thought um and um and these kind of instruments these mechanic instruments they are also natural instruments and biological instruments through which we access time but it was an interesting situation how even the most mechanical and most sort of universal coordin coordination sort of mechanisms such as clocks where you know at some moments of the covid sort of period were actually uh, becoming sort of, I wouldn't say relevant, but kind of, they they don't have the same effect on us uh, 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 as they had in the pre-COVID time. So it is like the 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 the, the notion of the clock time has kind of um for 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 some people and for some collectives has has lost its um its standard kind of characteristics that 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 uh, um, uh, that 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 are inscribed into the into the technology of clock time and um i think that the um um when it comes to um um the uh, uh in a more kind of um in a, in a kind of sort of maybe traditional sociological way uh, when I look at the how different groups experience time differently uh, or how they have over the past year and a half, you know, I would I can see three kind of significant groups. Um, one would be the lucky group. Um, there will be some academics, not all of them, some academics who really have some time who can slow down, who can meditate, who can catch up, 
of course, there would be academics who would be on the completely different end of the spectrum. You know, I can imagine that. But um, and there would be obviously different professions that where there would be the I would say lucky people who didn't have uh, who didn't get the disease, who whose relatives are healthy. I, I don't want to make it sort of hyper individualistic, but um, who can work from home, who are still paid, etc., uh, etc. Et but then there would be um, a, a probably a whole lots of uh, 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 incredible large group of people in every single country, in every single region, who are also at home, but they don't have jobs and they have plenty of time at their hands. And is it the time that you want to have the, the, the kind of leisure time? No, it's a time of the unemployed, which is something completely different. As we know, and um, so there will be the kind of the the the, the, the kind of the tension uh, w that I can see with the ones with the people who suddenly had some time on their you know in their hands when when the, when the pandemic started you know those that, that could be the lucky ones who were paid and who get their jobs and they could work from home okay Zoom they got Zoom fatigue at some point etc. But some fundamentals of their lives were still maintained, whereas you know that there, there, there is the other group of, of the unlucky ones, for, for the lack of a better word, I'm sorry, but who, who stayed at home but unemployed and depressed, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Then the second big group that I can see is the is like you know lower classes and upper. And 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 middle classes, even sometimes upper middle classes, who did stay, you know, who kept their work, who kept their job, who stayed home, but um, had had plenty of other sort of caring obligations, um, like either kids or elderly, very important group of people, um, but they had to still working um, full time basically, and there were other commitments coming into the game. So um, that's another huge group of people that were that were experiencing um, many sort of unforeseeable kind of situations in their households. I think um, uh, in, when it comes to time juggling and time organization, um, and that went completely out of joint, you know. And then there is a third group that that probably begins, and it must begin with medical professionals. Who would probably completely disagree with this idea of you know having more time at their hands you know this is the you know and, and, and not medical professionals obviously but also also the, the 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 professionals who have been maintaining the basic infrastructure for social existence uh, th these people have been you know busy to an extent that you know those of us who are not working as police in police law enforcement and or you know firemen or, or as i said medical professional that doesn't have to be reminded i'm afraid but uh, maybe it does have to be reminded and 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 these people have been ever since the beginning at least here in the czech republic um so incredibly uh the commitment and the 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 the, the energy and and the 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 sheer humanity there was there was there was just there regardless of the of of 16 hours at work 20 hours at work you know um, I, I they don't care you know it's like this needs to be done this needs to be 
care of and and um, so and there are many other aspects when it comes to time but I, I may stop here if you Scott might have any further kind of if some something caught your attention that you want to talk further about maybe or uh, I don't want to uh, yeah 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 I mean first of all I think it's it's very helpful to me to to try to parse out those different experiences of time because the the push to experience simultaneity has been really kind of oppressive in some ways, I think, for people. You know, the dominant culture telling us, you know, we're all in this together, we're all experiencing this together. Um, and each of us, I think, in different ways throughout this conversation, have pointed out that, well, that we know that's not the way the world is, but I don't think we often consider that in terms of how people experience time. And so to me, it's really illuminating. I wanted to just share back with you, Philip, and others that my colleague, Malka Older, who's been a guest on several times, she had this concept that she developed called Corona lag, which is another layer of this, kind of this odd experience, like just like we're having three different time zones around the world having this conversation. And so in this safe space that we've created, where we're you know, we've created our own time zone for this conversation and people around the world have been doing this through technology throughout the pandemic. But outside my window is a South Korean experience of COVID and outside Tanya's window is a Florida experience and outside yours, Philip, is a Czech Republic experience and outside Summers is a New England experience. And those epidemiological realities are pretty divergent, frankly. And so that's a kind of a weird she's it's her play on a sort of jet lag concept that it's really jarring to constantly be going back and forth where we are trying to I think most of us empathize with our colleagues and what they're going through on the other side of that screen and it's not good or bad it's just yet another challenge to how we think about time and simultaneity and so that's some of the thinking I think your work really syncs up nicely with what she's trying to ex explore there with that. I have one more, we should move towards conclusion, but I, I just one more small question, Philip, if you can just, uh, you know, if you want to take it on is what do you think would be a couple of the primary sources of this time? What are the things you're squirreling away? Images, or I don't even know what one collects as a time researcher, frankly, I think it's kind of, I should, as a historian, I should know that, but I, I, what are some of the shards or fragments of this time that you're, holding on to that you think are going to have explanatory power going forward? Yeah, I would say that it's a certain degree of, um, I'm not sure if, 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 you know, I would divide it into two kind of things. One would be technological interaction with technological artifacts. Uh, as you've probably, you, 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 Scott have just described another fascinating layer of, uh, of um, of of uh, you know the the, the 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 asymmetry or divergence between the the sort of a, the shared screen time and you know these you know incredible number of of, of incredible you know the sheerness of, of different time sort of uh, 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 how how should I say time realities in which people out there you know live right. And um, and I think that that that's you know the interaction with technological artifacts are to me one of the um, one of the sources of how I try to think about time because you know given that you know the whole half of the planet the global north for sure 
has migrated to to the net and um this for me as a, someone who's also been trained as well trained i'm not sure if this is the right word as a sort of critical theorist frankfurt school etc um I'm, I'm i'm just kind of you know well there's a lots of capital accumulation new modes of capital accumulation going on because of that because of our screen time uh, in silicon valley and um which has been already a kind of a power hub you know global power hub for political you know in political sort of sense and financial sense i'm not even talking about that but the, with the, with the covid situation with, with our time that we spend with technologies um i mean communication technologies uh this has even deepened you know and so i can see that you know time is is a kind of um you know i i see some kind of a situation in which you know obviously my sociological like you know the the cats they have the what's it called the um the the, the things here that they can whiskers. sense uh, yeah whiskers uh so they sense something so i sense something related to time but then it opens up a kind of an, an avenue for me of thinking you know so what does that mean you know what does the whole thing that we spend increasing amount of time um uh, connected online what does it actually mean you know in terms of political economy for instance global political economy right so that's one kind of thing that I that I tend to think about uh, how I access you know um yeah uh, thinking about time and the other one very quickly perhaps um is like you know there is this concept that I constantly bear in mind uh, uh, frenetic standstill uh, by uh, by a thinker called Paul Virilio, um, and it, uh, he has been highly criticized for 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 his work. But I think that um, we have entered with the COVID time and with the COVID whole situation, or how to how to put it, into something of that sort. And it's very interesting for me to think about it to take some of the old concepts that probably didn't work or were criticized for various kinds of reasons. And kind of reapply them and rethink them in this moment. You know? So, I think we'll we probably should move towards a conclusion. I've been very greedy with the time. Speaking of which, of my guests today, and they've coped with my technological shortcomings. But this has been a really illuminating conversation. I think we just would do one lightning round um, to finish up. Anything you heard that you wanted to bring back up, or that. Um, anything we didn't get to that that you wanted to mention, uh, and just a maybe a provocation on this is how each of you think your the research in your own field or disaster research more generally is going to change coming out of COVID. If you think it is at all, Tanya, let me let me bring that to you, or anything you want to pick up on that was raised here, just as we're as we're going out on the conversation. Yeah, thanks, Scott. Yeah, actually, Philip and Summer both made me kind of make connections and thinking about what we've been talking about together, which is, you know, if I had to think about two things that we are missing in disaster research right now, it's thinking about the scope and the duration in new ways. And um, something, Summer, you know, you were talking about with these private partnerships, you know, we are missing important ways to innovate and solve huge, wicked public policy problems. And so there's just such a need to think about slow onset disasters and climate change and more pandemics and to really to really tie the, all of this together 
I just can't emphasize enough how, you know, it, and I won't talk long, but at one point during this so far in the pandemic, I thought, you know, a political scientist studying policy and disasters in Florida. And I just, I was a little despondent at one point and I said, what am I doing this for? This doesn't matter. And, but as time went along, I started to realize that it matters more than ever. And we just need to do this differently. We have to stop, you know, the things that you're doing, Scott, to tie it back to you. You know, we have to start talking to each other. We have to start talking to the public and with our people and our communities and really just engaging relentlessly, I think. And, and that would be my, I think that's what's going to change for me because I don't know if you guys can tell, but I'm kind of shy. I don't really like to, <laughs> to seek attention, but I think we've got to start talking about this with everybody. You know, that's mine. I, that's a really valuable point to me and one that many other guests have shared that, um, and none of us, well, I'll speak for myself. I have no training in podcasting. I have no training in creating an archive. I think a lot of people have been making experiments in this time because they feel like the knowledge transfer things we've built over time, including the university structure itself, uh, hasn't served us very well, frankly. Now, I mean, I'm speaking very generally. I don't, and epidemiology is different. Public health is, everything is different. I'm talking about social sciences and humanities here. And it's an enormous, it's gone below the radar because frankly, people are following what's going on with vaccine development more than they're following what's going on with sociology and history and disaster. But they should be following social sciences because I think there's a lot of experimentation going on. Right now, that's just my pitch. I don't know, Summer. I bring it to you. Any for any final thoughts on this or anything else we've been talking about? Yeah, great points, Tanya. And I think you know, of course, as a social scientist, the things that jump out to me first are issues of hoping that this forces us to push disciplinary boundaries, which disaster research is already quite interdisciplinary. But we're still obviously those of us, especially working in the academy, are dealing with different kinds of silos. Um, and also thinking about the policy impact of our work, and especially in global health um, and in international relations in particular, there's a big disconnect between global health and IR scholarship. Um, and I think a part of that is, in fact, that the World Health Organization, for example, when they go to get academic advice, traditionally, they look to epidemiologists. And this has really shown and put on display that health is political at every level. And I, I do believe that's that's changing. I mean, the WHO you know, has worked with several colleagues to you know, for advice throughout the course of the pandemic. And I hope that there will be a broader acknowledgement of this, um, both on the policy side and on the academic side. And then I think, you know, stepping back even further, I, I'm not the one who frames my research here as studying slow disasters, though we all do. So I'm probably preaching to the choir and hopefully this will resonate with people out there, but I remember studying climate change, you know, 15 years ago or so. Um, and everyone said, you know, this is, a, you know, going to become uh, a big problem. It's going to be visible at some point, but the reason you can't get policy attention for it is because it's happening slowly under the radar. And I, going back to that, I hope, you know, we've obviously had plenty of very visible disasters, but COVID has been so big in scope and scale and so visible um, that I hope it changes the way 
uh, we channel policy attention. Um, and I completely agree with you, Tanya, that that's going to require us to talk about things as people and as academics that we might not otherwise want to spend the time or energy talking about and advocating for in a policy space. For that, Summer. And, and Philip, I'm going to give you the, the last word on this round. Yeah, I'll be very quick um, to, 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 to kind of intertwine points. There is a brilliant book by uh, edited by Jared Dallantib, a British political and social theorist. And I have a quote which very much echoes what, 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 what uh, Tanya and Summer have been talking about. And it goes, the analysis of the pandemic is not confined to the specialist fields of epidemiology and public health on how infectious diseases spread and how they can be controlled. This is as much a sociological question as it is a biological one, since viral infections are transmitted through social interaction. And uh, having said that, you know, and the final sentence for me is like that I, 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 I would like to invite the, the not just the social scientific sort of audiences and, and, and the SSH people, generally speaking, but also natural scientists to pay a, a, a more attention to the interaction of the humans and non-humans, like viruses. So I think we've worked out a pretty stout research agenda here um, with between these three guests on the researchers roundtable today. And I want to just remind everyone you've been listening to COVID calls and you can catch COVID calls uh, most weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern time and occasionally at 5.30 p.m. Korea time. And we will have tomorrow uh, a COVID calls episode both at 5.30 p.m. Eastern time and Korea time. So tomorrow is a double header. Please do join me on COVID calls tomorrow. And I want to thank my guests, Philip Bostall, Summer Marion, and Tanya Corbin, first of all, for the work they've been doing throughout this pandemic and the inspiration that they bring with that work, but also um, for their time here today in the roundtable. Thank you all so very much and keep going with this uh, phenomenal work that you're doing. Thank you, Scott. Appreciate it. Thank, thank you, you so much for having us. Thank you. Thanks. Stay everybody. healthy, everyone. We'll see you tomorrow, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time.